All right. Interlude four going into to Oathbringer. What were your guys' thoughts on our interludes this time around? Uh, Paul, I know you're a big fan of interludes in general. Or what if you was not a fan of interludes to start? I don't remember who it was. Like way back in the way of Kings, one of you was not a fan of interludes. I think it was me. Because I think in Way of Kings, there's some fairly exciting sections of the story. And I, I think I talked about how I didn't like being pulled out of the excitement to have to focus on something else and then having to jump back into it. Even though I liked the contents of the interlude, I didn't like the the jarring aspect of that. So I think that was me. It definitely was not me. I think I liked interludes even more so then because it was like, Whoa, Ishik, when are we ever going to see him? Whoa, Nonbalant, how is he ever going to come into play? And, like, that's where my mind was. Uh, and I have to say, I'm really happy with these interludes, and I'm glad. I was losing hope in interludes. I feel like they've gotten more, less, less exciting and fun um, for me. But these were really good. I, I really enjoyed these. They were less of, like... Oh, crazy new character, new place, and more of like, okay, these are characters we know, and we're seeing deeper into them, like Teravangian, and then our singers, um, there with Venli. And we do get another new character, though, starting off with Kaza. Um, and I think. Even though this was a little new, like a new character, I think it was the one that interested me the least, or at least didn't stick out that much. But I'm curious to get your thoughts. Well, she doesn't last that long, so that's not that surprising that we probably won't have another interlude from her anytime soon. I thought the first, the first interlude was by far the most intriguing of the three. The other two were very interesting and much more relevant to what's going on and had me a little more engaged. But the first one is, it's, it's a new place. It's, it's kind of out of context from the other stuff that we're dealing with, but it was one that like raised a whole bunch of questions for me. Like, oh, wait a second. What about, ooh, but what about, ooh, but what about that? So that's, that's actually the one I probably want to talk about the most because we visit I keep messing up this word. Is it just Amia? The way it said? Amia. 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 I cannot get that one in my head for some reason. But we go visit that, the island, Amia. And I've been intrigued by this place since we first heard it, since it was first tied to Axes. Axes the collector, yep. Exactly. We saw Axes a few times and we learned that he was a Amian. I guess is how you might say that. Yep. So from, from that very moment, I've been intrigued, like, okay, here's a pretty crazy guy with some weird abilities and powers, and he comes from this mystical land. Like, ooh, I want to learn more about that. And so here we are going to visit that. I was immediately like, ooh, yes, let's learn more about this land. We end up not maybe learning a ton about it, except that it seems to be very directly tied to our Mr. Kremling man, or in this case, a Mrs. Kremling woman, as you've written in the notes here. Trevor. I have put that in the outline, yes. <laughs> and and so this is now bringing in a couple things together for me. This is taking the mystical land of of Aemia and tying it to 
the sleepless who appear to be like defending this land interesting i don't know if you guys have uh have watched loki the the new marvel show but in that show there's the tva who kind of correct get like step in and correct anything that's not supposed to happen in the marvel cinematic universe and that's how i view the sleepless like that they're kind of just chilling and then if you go somewhere you're not supposed to or see something you're not supposed to then they'll you know conveniently remove you from the equation and that's what's happening in this interlude where there's this expedition there's this voyage that we're gonna go to aemia we're gonna get all the treasures that are lost in aemia because the island defends itself but there's really nobody there let's it's it's abandoned let's go um let's beat this storm that sits over aemia and get all this treasure for ourselves they successfully get past everything that defends aemia all of the passive things if you will that defend aemia there's a storm there's some what what's a good word for these like well there's they call them spikes right it's just like right. this wall of giant spikes that you can't get past yeah and they soul cast their way past that and then once they finally get to once they finally get past the soul cast spikes then one of the sleepless poisons them all oops and they're all dead Yeah. And along the way, we learn that Aemia has something to do with soul casting, or like historically, that's where soul casters originally came from, like the, the devices that, that they have. And we learn a little bit more about our character who is a soul caster, who's fading away to nothing, like she's succumbing to her element that she's soul casting with. It's It was all very fascinating. Yeah. She's rather crazy by the end of this by the end of her life here where she's becoming one with her soul caster and her her fingers are disappeared and she's she threatens this poor sailor who's trying to be her friend and she's like hey you want to be one with the air and he's like no thank you and runs away (laughs) so well i have to i have to chime in and say i'm very very glad we've seen some of our Miss Kremling woman here. Um, just because it, it, it adds just a lot more clarification and, um, or at least confirmation about the sleepless and uh, not the sleepy like me, the sleepless um, um, and stuff. And so you, you mentioned them kind of being the ones to like correct when people see things they shouldn't see or go places they shouldn't go or things like that. Was that really like confirmed here? I don't remember that or where that was specifically. So you're not supposed to go to Aemia and everybody kind of knows that like in the legends, like you don't go to Aemia, nobody comes back from Aemia. And this captain heard the stories of the spikes and heard the stories of the, the, the ship's, Uh, getting lost at sea from the storm and he figured out that the storm stops at a certain point and then if you soul cast away the spikes then you theoretically you can get to the to the um to the island and so 
the sleepless caught on to this and they're like, oh, this guy could actually get to the island. We're going to stop him and poisons the whole crew and says, I told you not to come this far. And this is the price that you have to pay. Like, that's kind of the last couple couple words that the the sleepless tells Kaza is I had to do this because they were getting too close because that's everybody else is dead at that point. And the reasoning behind it, yeah, that's what I was going to just talk about is it's ominously hinted that something really like powerful or destructive is there, maybe. I was trying to actually look up the words. Yeah, here it is. So the, the sleepless won't even tell Kaza as she's dying why they can't be there. All, she'll, all the sleepless says is the cost would be the end of worlds. Like, I've already put the, the sleep right, like, awkward, awkward pause. I, I've kind of put the sleepless in this category of they're, they're in, like, the super powerful category. When the super powerful being tells you you can't have this because it might destroy the world, like, that's scary, really scary. Yeah. What the heck could, what the heck could, could be on this island? Um... My guess, which I definitely know, I you know, I, I'm sure I know everything I need to know to know what's on this. Um, so we always saw these, like, mentions from the, what was it, the visions or, like, high storms of these, like, humongous beasts that's on, Trevor mentioned was on, like, the back cover of the book or whatever. You can kind of see, like, a huge leg or whatever. I bet all that, whatever all that stuff is, all those thingies... That make no sense to me right now. I'm just going to say they're on this island. And that if people go there, they're going to like disrupt whatever's keeping them there and they're going to go trample the world. So, um, so all the little dinos, it's Dino <laughs> Island. Yeah. I mean, it is Crab Island at this point, a bunch of little Kremlins. Yeah. So. Crab, Crab Dino Island. Yeah. I've got a crazy theory for you. Let's hear it. I think cultivation is on this island. I think that the... This is a little far-fetched. I don't know if I actually think this, but the theory goes cultivation is on this island and the sleepless are like the minions of cultivation. They are like her her people and they are her like arm that goes out amongst the world and does her her bidding we, we've kind of got this but we actually i think didn't get to talk about this a little earlier when we were talking about cultivation we we theorized that maybe perhaps she is the night watcher i'm not so sure about that actually i think she might be different i think she might be tied to the sleepless and i think they might be defending her on amia we did we did allude to that a little bit and what i was saying is that who did we learn the night watchers cultivation from odium you know that's not a very reliable source of information so that your theory is totally valid elliot and i think we're we're jumping to the conclusion that odium told us that cultivation was the night watcher simply because he says dalinar you've met her before 
but she took your memories of her away. That's that's kind of the hint. And that, that does seem to drive with what we believe is Dalinar's trip to the Night Watcher, but that could easily also be a completely separate incident of he met Cultivation once, and Cultivation was like, hey, to protect myself, I'm going to take those memories away. And and that could be a whole other separate incident with the Night Watcher where Dalinar goes and asks for something and in, like almost accidentally gets his memories taken by the Night Watcher. So I'm not convinced the two are the same. Yeah, gotcha. Anything else from Interlude 4? Has something to do with Soulcasters, has something to do with Mr. Kremling Man. Um, it also described gemstones. Like, that's why the sailors were there, and a bunch of gemstones were just, like, there for the taking. And right before Kaza dies, she does see one. She's like, oh, hey, there's a gemstone. So there might be some truth to that. I think we've also had some sort of reference of, like, chasm fiends, perhaps, or some great big creatures related to Aemia. So these could easily be, like, gem hearts, you know, coming from those beasts, maybe. But yeah, a lot of questions. Alrighty. Interlude 5. Teravangian. So, Teravangian does not have the best day of his life in this episode, or in this chapter. He has the second best day of his life, where he's not the man who writes the diagram. He is the man who interprets the diagram. He sees things that none of the other scholars next to him i've seen and he kind of re reinterprets the diagram and he has some interesting things to say about the children who are singing Vorn hymns outside i think that line is hilarious that i can picture that in my head but what did you guys get out of this episode or this chapter i keep doing that So this was my my main thought with this was how how um like emotionally different Terbangian was. So I feel like we haven't we can't really see the difference that he's making intellectually. We know he's really smart, but I feel like we haven't seen him like I don't know. We, we've seen him make this chart, but in the literal story that we're reading. Like, I feel like that doesn't have that much significance right now. But more so we see his, like, character or his, like, emotion with it. Like, whenever he's having a not-so-smart day, he's more, like, relaxed and kind of courteous or, like, thoughtful, kind of nice, nicer guy. And this, he, like, everything annoys him. He's mad at everything, like... No one he's can cranky. live up to his expectation. Yeah, he's a cranky old person. Exactly. There was a good section in this interlude. I was trying to flip to it real quick, but I think I remember most of it, where you know, Teravangian has seen everything around him as like a hindrance. He's like, I'm brilliant. Let me do my thing. Get out of my way. And his, his second-in-command lady... Adrotagia. Adrotagia, yep. She she has a moment where she says, No, 
you aren't you, you're the monster you sometimes become. Yep. And, and basically, you know, the rest of the discussion is where she's, you know, I'm going to stop you because even you, when you're actually you, know that you need to be stopped when you're like this. But the Taravangian of this moment doesn't see that. He just wants to be unfettered awesomeness and uses his brilliance to save the world. But he's clearly blinded to maybe the empathy or emotion side of, of things. It's it's all pure logic. And that's, you know, brought to a brought to the forefront when he's getting annoyed by the Voran hymns by the children that are singing yeah. and he's like and somebody kill those children and then they all like trail off because they heard him like shouting at the top of his lungs to kill him like i just imagine that in a movie scene where they're like uh, 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 uh. like <laughs> they're all like yeah upset about it all the kids At the end of this chapter, there's a change in motivation for Tervangian. His new plan is to support Dalinar and his coalition, and once it's complete, he dethrones him and takes control of the coalition, and that's how he saves the world. Secondly, he's been told that they can't beat Odium. They have to negotiate with Odium, and that's how they win. They save who they can. So he knows that Dalinar would never accept that, is that we're not going to, you know, give in to Odium. That would be Dalinar's stance. So he needs to dethrone Dalinar once he has the coalition of monarchs, and that's how he saves everybody. Any theories on how he's going to do this? Okay, I wasn't going to bring up this theory because... I thought it was too ridiculous and would never happen. Um, but whenever we were talking about our Bond Smiths and how there's three of them, there can be three of them, there's three shards of whatever the big word was, palinaeum, you know, three shards <laughs> of the palinaeum, um, you know, <laughs> odium, honor, and cultivation, or not honor, um, Stormfather. Anyways, my thought was like, who could bond Odium? You know, and I was like, what if Taravangian went into one of these visions on his like most brilliant day ever? Just the best day ever, just, you know, and was able to bond Odium. What then? You know, like what happens? And oh, wow. so I'm going to just say that. It's going to somehow end up in Tervangian will bond odium. So. I think that's really interesting because, Elliot, you said the exact opposite of of that earlier this episode of on one side you had Tervangian, who is complete logic, no no emotion at all, and on the other side is odium, incarnate emotion. So it's interesting mm -hmm. that you go for that and route. We definitely have seen our sprint person relationships be be very polar or pulling or contrary with a lot of our characters. So true. Could be. 
What if what if the ultimate showdown of this book or later is Dalinar having bonded part of honor versus Teravangian having bonded part of odium? Like that's the ultimate final final showdown. That would be that'd be pretty crazy. That's what I was thinking of as well. Like, wouldn't that be so sick? That would be so sick. Oh my gosh. I I think I, I gotta say I I don't think so for just the reason that Trevor kind of pointed out. I kind of am, am now seeing Odium and Teravangian as, as very different forces. They're both they're both in the category of evil. They're both going to destroy a lot of people, but they're going about it in like opposite ways. And so for them to come together and join forces, like toward what common end would be my question. Like what are what are the two of them trying to achieve together? I don't know that I could answer that. But in on the other hand, I could maybe see it work of maybe Odium convinces Teravangian to do to fall in line and go with his agenda and we have this big old showdown. Yeah. Could could work. Could be crazy, but it could work. Yeah, that that's one that I really don't see playing out. But since we like kind of brought it up more, I, I just had to throw that out there. More more short term, how is he going? How is Tevanchian going to spy? Well, we know actually know how is he's, he's going to use the Dustbringer Spren. But what what secrets does Dalinar have that could get him dethroned from the rest of the monarchs? We know that Dalinar has secrets. Because he has secrets from himself. He Correct. has a past that he doesn't even know about, that we're trying to figure out, that we don't even know about. So there's certainly things to find out that we are definitely guessing may be quite dark. And yeah, I, there's definitely stuff to dig up. I don't know that we know yet. Dalinar's secrets are they going to be revealed by the end of his book probably probably because so. it's Dalinar's book we'll right? The, right this is when we're going to see the flashbacks and stuff so I yeah I feel like that has to be the, the conclusion of this story it's Dalinar's book that's we need those answers to close that part of Dalinar's story. So if if that continues on into another book, that would be frustrating. Not yeah. saying it wouldn't happen. <laughs> Anything else from Interlude 5, Terror Vengeance, Interlude? All right. Last interlude of the evening, we have Ven Lee, and she is with her other listener friends who have summoned the Everstorm and brought back the Fused. And there's the Spren that we saw in the last interlude with with Venli, who didn't overtly lie to Venli and say, "We're I know Eshenai's dead, we're going to go find her for her Shardblade. She just said, we're going to go find Eshenai. And Venli's like, oh yeah, cool. I want to find Eshenai too. And then the spread knew she was dead this interlude 
best friend just flat out lies to her and says uh open up yourself to the spread of the storm you guys are going to be completely safe it'll be totally fine and this is how it's going to be and venley doesn't do that they were not completely safe because one of her friends just gets crushed by a rock and everybody else dies to the fused the fused have taken over their bodies so uh venley certainly got the short end of the stick here all of her friends are dead and the fused are taking over their bot taking over their bodies what are you guys' thoughts on this venley um, is up to this point like the true believer right she's like the the one who's kind of set a lot of things in motion and has been advocating for storm form and bringing back the gods and she, she really, really wants to believe. And she has even a couple of moments in this interlude where she's justifying Eshenai's death. Later on, she justifies her, her once mate guy's death. But I think the cracks start to show a little bit at, by the end of this chapter, she's starting to doubt whether she is serving the right people by the end of this. And this is this interlude is really the reason why the listeners are who they are and the singers are who they are. The listeners are afraid of the fused. And Relaine kind of talked touched on this a couple chapters ago of the fused are as much an enemy to the listeners as they are to the humans. They take over our bodies, they kill us to just to fight the humans. And that's why the listeners were so afraid of Gavilar bringing back their gods was they use us as hosts. So that's why they were still trying to stop Gavilar from all of this happening. Um, so if you think about the term listener, that's way more passive than singer. Like they hear the rhythms, but they don't participate. They're not singing. They're not participating and seeking out the, the fused and and the rhythms and stuff like that so that's the distinction between singers and and listeners we've heard both of those terms i imagine that this is beginning to set up a little bit just for the future of the next book um just knowing that is it is from Vinley's perspective right um i imagine we're just starting to see the the early phases of setting a premise getting us more venly content i guess um but uh as far as our interludes go this one had a lot of really good stuff but i probably took a bit less from this one um there was some really cool stuff though um especially as at the end seeing like i don't know what it is if it's a little like wind sprint or what that's yeah. kind of what we're left with at the end um it almost seems like a sylphrana moment of like a little wind sprint kind of like flutters through and then um i guess she recognizes it and so, i don't know if this is significant or what do you remember She's seen the spren before. Do you remember this? 
when oh, Yash... he, was it at Ashenai's body? Correct. Yes. Ashenai's body, the spren is kind of hanging out near Ashenai, and then she sees it again here and immediately hides it because she knows that like she has this instinct that if the few see it, they will kill it and her and whatever. Like she knows it's not on their side. The whole sequence of this chapter with the the storm and why Venley does not get taken over by a fused was very interesting to me. The storm rolls in, the the fused are like taking over the bodies, and then something else intervenes. Correct. And like figuring out what is what is going on here, I feel like is important to figure out what that little spren is, because. It almost happens in a similar way to like how the storm father interacted with like Kaladin, whether it's where it's like middle of the storm and then all of a sudden this voice comes in and it's like, no, this, this one is mine. And it, it fends off the fuse. Like my first thought was, oh, storm father. But we know this is the ever storm, not the high storm. And so it's like, well, what's the equivalent of the storm father in the ever storm? Well, the obvious answer is Odium, and they talk about that in the chapter, like, oh, right. Odium has chosen you. So it, it seems like that this is Odium, but this little spread at the end makes me wonder. Because Venley's so sure that this little spread is not on the side of the fused, why is this spread showing up? Like, how how is that related to all this? It's It's interesting. It's a my main takeaway is who's preserving her, who's defending her against this fuse, and saying this one is mine and preserving her soul. So, and and even if it is odium, like why why is odium picking a a singer to be his chosen one, or like what what does he have in mind for her? What what is her greater purpose such that she needs to not surrender her body to a fused. I'm, I'm sure that will probably be explored in the next book. If if this, I, I agree with you, Paul. This is probably just a little bit of a a lead into the next one. It would be my guess. But now I'm now I'm a little more intrigued for that book actually, based on this interlude. I I agree because as until this, thinking about next book, I didn't even know what it would do with Venley. Like yeah, right. Like, okay, we've seen some stuff, but nothing major, so. I had a similar thought. When I heard that Rhythm of War was Fenley's book after reading Oathbringer, I was like, really? Like, that's kind of weird. Yeah, but this begins to kind of open open that door. It kind of cracks it open a little bit, and we can... Because I imagine by the time we're at Rhythm of War, then... I'll I'll just make the make the assumption that her and this spren will be like maybe not a normal thing to us in this book, but we'll kind of pick up there of like her with this spren and we'll be able to be like we know this happened a while ago kinda kinda thing, so I'm real curious to see if are we gonna go back to the way things were in, in Way of Kings where we had different storylines but they were very separated. 
we had Kaladin and Shallan, and they never interacted. It was two very different storylines. Is that what Rhythm of War is going to be, where we have Venli and then we have our other characters? Or is some sort of event between now and then going to happen that's going to bring Venli together with our characters that we have? And we'll have more of the what we have now of like the, all the different interlacing plot lines that are more much very much in the same, well, mostly, I guess, in the same place, all happening at the same time. I'm curious what that format is going to look like in Rhythm of War. I will make my prediction that it won't really happen at this book. But kind of like in rhythm, or excuse me, words of radiance, it'll be like near the beginning of the book, maybe into part one or in part two or something. Then they will be like united somehow, or like like put into the same space. Um, but I think I would guess we have a lot to left to go still. But I would guess that uh, continuing in Oathbringer, we're gonna kind of follow how we have been with our characters. Anything else for my interludes? We're, despite only being two parts of the way through, we're actually pretty close to halfway through the entire book. I think a couple more episodes and I think we'll be there. All right. So a little secret about Oathbringer. Brandon Sanderson describes Oathbringer as two stories in one. And his first story culminates at the end of part three. And his second story obviously culminates at the end of part five. So we are, th- I will say this, we are through the slow part of Oathbringer. And we, part three is a wild ride, gentlemen. I've seen multiple, not one, not two, at least three or more comments from people on our YouTube comments or in our Discord in various places say that part three of Oathbringer is either like their favorite or is notable in some way. So my expectations are high going into this. If, if this is like the part that people think of when they think of Stormlight Archives, this, this could be big. I am super excited. I really feel like I'm going to set Rhythm of War aside a little bit and just say that setting out on this, like my end goal was like, okay, once we get to the the meat and potatoes of Oathbringer, that's whenever my life will be changed, according to Trevor. So, um, so I'm extremely excited going forward. And so no pressure, but uh, that is, I'll be. That is when I hard pressed you to read the Stormlight Archive. Is I just finished Oathbringer, and so that I mm-hmm. turned to you and was like, "You have to read this." Exactly, so. exactly. And so I will be very critical in a good way. Like, like I'm, I'm very excited to enjoy having gone through this for like seventy episodes now, seventy-one episodes, and uh, and and enjoy this. But uh, I'll see if it lives up to your hype, Trevor, because you've been hyping this up for like. Years, two, two years, <laughs> at least. Yeah, two and a half years, probably. All right, let's go read and find out. Thanks for joining me, Paul and Elliot. Let's go. Of course, let's go. <laughs>